0: Welcome to Cognition. I'm Joe Hardy.
1: And I'm Rolf Nelson. On today's episode, joining us is Dr. Josh Mealy, who's a blind inventor, a community leader, and a cartographer who's worked with tactile representations for the blind. Great to have you with us today, Josh. Thanks for being with us.
2: Thanks, Rolf. It's a pleasure. Always happy to join you guys. This is one of my favorite podcasts.
1: Wonderful to hear. So, Josh... You got your uh, PhD at Berkeley, just like uh, Joe and I, so this is how we know each other, just uh, fortuitous, uh, yes, to get that out of the way. And since getting your PhD, you've worked at a couple different places and and done all kinds of interesting projects. Uh, Do you want to talk a little bit about some of the things you've been involved in?
2: Sure, I'll give a quick uh, quick overview. I mean, I um, and when you say a couple places, you're kind of exactly right. I've um, I left uh, after grad school. I got a postdoc at the Smith Kettlewell Eye Research Institute in San Francisco, which is a vision research research nonprofit. Sort of, I call it a para academic uh, institution. It's sort of a think tankish place where um, you don't have any students, but everybody is sort of. Publishing and getting grants, and and uh, there are postdocs and stuff like that. So I had it. I started with a postdoc there, and um, over the next twenty years, basically went through a junior scientist and you know scientist and uh, director of uh, you know. I had a bunch of uh, projects and was a principal investigator there for for many years until uh, I moved to uh, made the made the jump to industry, and I am currently. Uh, principal researcher at Amazon Lab 126, the devices group at Amazon that does the, you know, the tablets and the fire TVs and the, the echoes and stuff like that. So, but I'm not here, you know, today I'm probably not going to talk too much about uh, Amazon stuff because I didn't actually get their permission to, you know, to talk about stuff. So, but there's plenty of other stuff to, um, to talk about. As you mentioned, I'm, I'm blind. Uh, I consider uh, blindness to be a, uh, Significant part of my identity, so a blind dad, a blind scientist, a blind inventor, etc. And my work is uh, totally directed at developing cool stuff for blind people that makes uh, makes our lives easier, better, more fun, uh, more equitable, etc. You mentioned maps. I've done lots of work on accessible maps, both auditory and tactile. I've done a lot of work on accessible video description, technologies, and techniques for making video more accessible to blind people. And, you know, there's other wayfinding stuff like GPS, uh, mobile tools, in addition to the tactile and auditory maps. And the other thing that is a significant part of what I've been working on is uh, what I call the Blind Arduino Project, which is I don't know how to, I don't know how to characterize it, but it's like, it's basically a project to work on getting blind and visually impaired people involved in building stuff with microprocessors, both to, uh, just for fun and to build confidence and also to build the tools that blind people often need that you simply can't buy off the shelf. So, um, so there's, 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 um, that's kind of a, Uh, a quick overview of the kinds of things I find interesting and work on uh, pretty regularly.
1: Now, okay, I'm interested because um, Joe and I are both, you know, we can, we can geek out on Arduinos and love tinkering around you, you luckily get to put the put inventor in your title. So you can call yourself an (laughs) inventor, which is something I'd I'd always dreamed of. Uh, So can you say anything more about how the blind Arduino project works? Because that sounds really fascinating.
2: Yeah, I mean there are two main um components to it. I mean, one is um a lot of the resources that are out there that encourage people to become makers and to, you know, sort of get into STEM through electronics making. A lot of those resources are very visual. Mm-hmm. You know, you go on a website and you'll see, you know, there's, you know, a little write-up and then there's a JPEG of a circuit diagram and it's like, okay, that's that's a blocker right there. Um, right. Same thing with, uh, just finding your way around on an Arduino board. If you want to know where, you know, where pin two is most of the time that's communicated through a picture. So a lot of the, you know, one, one significant portion of the project is really devoted to developing accessible documentation and sort of helping encourage, other people to think about the accessibility of their documentation. It's not just, you know, just the documentation that needs to be accessible. The Arduino uh, IDE on Windows, the IDE for mm-hmm. those of you non-nerds out there. That's the...
1: We don't have... No, no, we don't have any non-nerd listeners. Oh, no non <laughs> Okay. You can, okay. Yeah. But
2: no,
0: but I mean, we, we, maybe Arduino <laughs> is even something that, that we should introduce It's like what mm-hmm. it is. But yeah, yeah. yeah.
2: So Arduino is Arduino is a, a microprocessor platform. It's open source. it It basically is a little uh, circuit board that has a computer on it and lots of um, places to plug wires in. and uh, depending on what those wires are attached to, whether they're buttons or sensors or switches or displays or uh, motors, you can uh, tell the computer to do various things so, you know, you can tell it to run a motor when you push a button, or you can tell it to turn on a fan when the when the temperature sensor reaches a particular uh, level, or you can tell it to turn on the, the motors that are attached to wheels and scoot to the left when it sees something in the camera field of view on the right. So all kinds of um, robotics-y things that you can do with an Arduino, and and they're really cheap too. So they're cheap and easy to play with, and there's lots of documentation and people are using them all over the world to teach kids about science and engineering but as often happens blind kids are really underrepresented in those fields because a lot of the time you know most of the time sighted people think oh well how is how is a blind kid going to do this there's no way you know these wires are all colored these numbers are very small i can barely i can barely see them on the circuit board how is a blind kid going to do it so and of course, those are sort of false barriers. Uh, there's There are alternatives to colors of wires there. As I've been mentioning, you know, the fact that the numbers written on the circuit boards, like you just need to, you know, so what I have, you know, descriptions of Arduino boards that tell you, based on the the tactile landmarks on the board, what the socket numbers are and stuff like that. So that's the Arduino, and then the IDE is this um, integrated development environment, which is like the the word processor on your computer that you use to write the code that you load onto the Arduino that is the um, the program that it runs and the IDE on Windows is not accessible you can't use it with a screen reader, so not only do we need to tell people sort of where the you know how to find their way around on the hardware, we have to tell people how to do these tips and tricks about like using the command line environment to debug and upload their, their Arduino programs called sketches. So, um, so it's a, uh, it's a whole world of uh, documentation that needs, like, it's not just about making the regular documentation accessible. It's about sort of documenting the workarounds and the, the back doors that blind people need to know about in order to do the stuff at all. And then the other, the other part of the blind Arduino project, you know, so part of it is just like, Hey, let's, let's get more blind people into STEM. Let's get more blind people into doing the things that, you know, that they want to do. If there's a blind kid that wants to be a scientist, I want them to have the same experience, the same, you know, sixth grade robotics team experiences as as their sighted friends. And, and if they decide they don't want to be a scientist, uh, I want it to be because they don't want to do it. Not because, they didn't have the right opportunity
1: so thinking back on that, of course you've faced lots of hurdles in in every area, but are there particular things that you think of that you would like people not not to go through today
2: well I mean yeah I mean of course it's it's sort of autobiographical I mean it um, I was lucky and I had um, really supportive parents and teachers and was given like a lot of opportunities to succeed. I was always really interested in science and math and I was always supported by the the grown-ups around me and and but I did find myself in lots of classes you know where my parents were like damn right you can take that you know electronics class you know but I would get in there and the teacher would be like um I don't really know how to help you with this you know and so like so part of my hope is part of what we're doing is to try to raise um you know provide resources and um and uh communicate to teachers so that they Know about this stuff, and um, and I also, I don't know, you know, Heathkit. I'm I'm a little older than you guys. Heathkit may have been before. Oh, I remember time, the but,
1: that the electronics assembly things. You'd get the components yeah, and you'd solder them together.
2: Exactly, and and I, um, you know, I always wanted to do those myself, but like the the documentation was always in print. It was always mm. like the the printed circuit boards. Like there were no tactile markings on them. And so I would buy them and basically force my mom to to like read, read all this stuff to me. And, you know, it helped me And like, you know, I, you know, my mom had, you know, I, I learned how to solder as an adult, but as a kid, even my mom had some limits and didn't want me to solder. Um, So, so she learned to solder so that she could like build these things with me. But blind people can solder. And if she had known that, she would have let me solder. Like she just didn't know. And you know, I what part of what I do now is part of the you know blind Arduino thing is I teach mm-hmm. I teach blind soldering workshops, or at least I used to before the pandemic. And so, you know, that's and you know that's a real that's a real um, you know. A blind, a blind person with a soldering iron—that's like a blind person with a chainsaw. It makes people nervous, you know. <laughs> but it really says something, right? It's really, uh, it's, it really. The fact is that, like, if you know what you're doing, you know, you can, you can cut your own firewood. You can, you can solder your own projects. You can barbecue your own steaks. Oh, this it's was not.
1: Just, this was not advocating for no soldering. This is advocating for more chainsaws.
2: So I I didn't mention the blind chainsaw project, but um, (laughs) no, I'm just, I'm I'm just saying, I mean, there's, there's, you know, the tools are, there are lots of dangerous tools out there in the world, but if you know what you're doing um, and if you're careful, really, you don't need to be able to see, you just need to have appropriate uh, safety precautions so that you don't hurt yourself or someone else. And that's the same, the same thing is true of, of a sighted person, sighted people often don't realize that, um, that there's an enormous amount of information in the world available. That's not visual, but because, you know, you, you guys are vision scientists. I mean, Mm -hmm. you got, you've got, you know, you, you, you've claimed, you know, you've claimed 30% of the cortical real estate. Right. And it's pretty tough to ignore visual input. I mean, when, when, you know, visual input dominates and, um, and so sighted people often think, that because they use vision to do something that's the only way to do it but it's definitely not true and i'm not saying that there's nothing that a blind person can't do i think they're you know i'm not i'm not necessarily uh calling for you know blind lifeguards or um you know blind fighter pilots but but there's plenty of stuff that blind people can do that um that really is just a matter of technique and then you know that other stuff like fighter pilots i mean you know if you had a cockpit that had all the right accessible instrumentation i'd i'd then i'd say let's go but the um the whole thing about you know soldering is that it really it really speaks to people it's like once when when blind and sighted people realize oh my god blind people can solder like it's it's not a thing that they can't do it's kind of transformative in the way people think about what they can do, so it's not just like this STEM thing. It's sort of a, it's sort of a self-actualization kind mm-hmm. of, self-expansion kind of thing. And, and for sighted yeah. people, when they realize that they are blind people that solder, they're like, wow, maybe there's a whole bunch of other stuff that blind people can do that I didn't realize about. So, it's it's it really is. It's a multi-dimensional project with like lots of, um, lots of social and and technical aspects to it. The other thing that the blind Arduino project is trying to do is there are no, like you can't just go to Amazon and buy uh, a talking multimeter or. I, that a, was
1: one of the things that I was thinking of too. That's and that's, that seems like an electronics equipment that just comes designed for sighted people.
2: I mean, you can, they have built them over the years. Like you can buy one on eBay if you're lucky because they have existed at various times, but nobody's manufacturing one right now. And, um, and that's like just the basics, right? You definitely can't buy uh, an accessible oscilloscope anywhere. So a big part of the blind Arduino project is like let's let's design let's design accessible test equipment so that blind makers um, actually have access to the things, the tools they need, so that they can build their own tools to do do the stuff they want to do. So um, that's sort of the the first part of the project is uh educational and sort of consciousness raising and on a bunch of different levels and the second part is just very practical give give people give people designs and and help them design and build the tools they need whether it's whether it's an oscilloscope or a or a a, a gps thing that does something that nobody else is doing or any kind of tool that you might need that you can't buy off the shelf because you're you know because you're a population of one
1: i imagine I imagine you have a collection of some pretty great hack together stuff
2: you know um it's actually uh surprisingly not true i have I have a bunch of very basic tools that I keep, you know, like like a multimeter and a, a continuity tester. Um, I'm in the midst of designing and building uh an oscilloscope, which I'm really excited about. But I, I also, I mean, there are a lot of just sort of basic things that I do, like, you know, we use, um, you know, a lot of the time for sighted people, they would just, you know, attach a, attach a visual display and, and print stuff to it, right? Whether it's graphics or text, and there's no cheap way to do that for Braille, um, Braille, refreshable Braille is really expensive and hard to get. And, you know, part of what we want to do is keep stuff really cheap. so. One of the things that I've developed and sort of published a little bit about is this thing I call the servo meter, which is using a, a, a servo as a as a tactile gauge, as a quantitative mm-hmm. uh quantitative output. A servo, for uh, anybody who doesn't know, is a a a motor, sort of like a windshield wiper motor where it can um uh swing an arm uh 180 degrees from one direction to another direction. But the cool thing about a servo is that it knows where it is. Um, so you can tell it to go to a certain position, like, you know, 45 degrees. And then if you push on it, if you push it out of, uh, away from 45 degrees, it knows that it's being pushed and it pushes, pushes back. So it's really great for tactile uh, gauges and meters because they're really strong and, you know, and you can put tactile markings around the, you know, around the perimeter, like a, like a whatchamacallit, what's that a protractor kind of thing. Um, so that, you know, when it's pointing to, thirty-eight degrees, you can feel where the tactile markings are and know that that's, um, you know, that that corresponds to twelve point two volts or whatever. So I use I use servos a lot for output and and also sonification. Use uh, various mm-hmm. various uh, auditory output, and you can use you can use um, you know vibrate, vibrating motors so that you can you can do like you know Morse code output and stuff like that. Morse code is a little bit a little bit janky. Most people don't really know Morse code, and it's kind of a kind of a pain. Yeah. Um, but yeah, man, that's uh, that's the quick overview of of that kind of stuff.
0: That's really cool, man. Uh, I, you know, I guess one question would be: uh, You said that the pandemic is kind of hurting some of the uh, getting together stuff, but uh, maybe be curious to like you know, for people who are listening who may be interested in getting involved in that. If they say a few words about how how someone might be able to get involved in this project.
2: Um, I do have a, a little mailing list. Um, it's 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 sort of a it's it's a local uh, Bay Area list, but obviously since it's an email list, anybody can join. And this is a place where um, you know before the pandemic, we would uh, sort of advertise our our workshops and our meetups and our get-togethers. And um, since the pandemic happened, I haven't really been too active on it, but. Um, it's something that i'm i'm about to sort of spin up actively again so that um that mailing list is called uh b-a-b-a-m-m the bay area blind uh arduino um bay area blind arduino monthly meetup Babam, um b-a-b-a-m-m at um groups.io so ba-bam with two M's, B A B A M M at groups.io, and that's uh just an open. It's a list anybody can join, and um, and generally speaking, when when there are interesting things going on, um, we'll uh, publish them on that list. Also, I've got a a fairly inactive blog, um, but but by looking at the blog, people can definitely sort of see what what the idea is, and the the blog is. Um, what is the it's blindarduino.blogspot.com so yeah so that's uh and and it's you know my i'm i'm really i'm really tired of not doing this stuff cuz you know obviously it's really hands on um mm-hmm. you know um but i'm getting to the point where if if we can't start doing stuff in person pretty soon then I, i'll i i have to figure out how to do this remotely the remote part is hard because i always to these meetups, I always bring all the hardware, right? Like I always bring all of these Arduinos and cables and, and, you know, sensors and like, you know, give people a chance to, to play with them. And then, uh, you know, so for, for a, a virtual thing, I'm going to have to like send people a list of things to order. And then people have to start shelling out money and it's just, it gets, it gets. So,
1: What are some interesting? Have you seen any interesting projects come out of it, or or any interesting ideas? Or do you think of it mostly as just a playground?
2: It's mostly a playground. The there are a couple of interesting ideas that have come out of it, um, but mostly it's uh, the obvious stuff, like you know, like the accessible oscilloscope, right? Or Mm -hmm. um, the I I ran a workshop a few years ago to design. We designed and built. A multimodal multimeter, where the the multimeter had auditory, tactile, and speech, and speech output. One of the one of the cool one of the coolest things that I'm really interested in in seeing if we can do is there's, you know, uh, blind people, you know, we've got uh, phones that are accept- You know, a, a blind person can use an iPhone or an Android, and they can use a laptop um, you know, with accessible software on it and stuff, but there's no equivalent to like a little black book that you can just grab and jot notes into. Mm. Um, and there's a whole sort of world of products out there for blind people called braille note takers. And they have a sort of a braille keyboard on them and usually, uh, refreshable braille or speech output. And they're just, they're really just for, um, taking notes. And they're really, they're small, and um, the first ones were really just for taking notes, and sort of as they, as computers got more and more capable, people started putting more and more stuff into them until they became little computers in their own right.
1: So this is something that would have a, instead of any sort of monitor, uh, it would ha- it would just have raisable braille that that could be adjusted or, in, speech. It,
2: yeah, or, or speech, yeah, or text to speech, yeah, or text to speech too. Okay. Yep. And um, and so uh, at this point, and, and because these little devices are so specialized, these Braille note takers are so specialized, they're um, they're pretty expensive. They're sold, you know, they're thousands of dollars a piece mm-hmm. and they've, you know, they're based on Android and they've got, you know, they've got web browsers and calculators and databases and word processors and man, it's just more complicated than it really needs to be in a lot of. Uh, cases. Um and so one of the things I'd I'd really like to do is design a an open source braille note taker that's like uses only off-the-shelf parts, is really cheap, easy to easy to make, um, easy to modify, and can be used as a simple braille note taker by anybody in the world. Because you know, for most, you know, I mean we're here in the US, you know, we have access to um, you know, if you're blind in the U.S., then if you're going to school, you've got access to uh, resources to help you buy equipment. If you are, you know, employed, you have resources there. But if you're just, um, if you're somebody who doesn't have a job and doesn't, you know, if you're not in the U.S. or if you're in a, a developing country, getting hold of this kind of technology is really hard. Uh, so the idea of making something that's open source and easy to build from readily available parts is, um, is very appealing on a, on a, a social level, you know? So again, mm-hmm. again, these, you know, you never get far from the, from the social justice angle uh, uh, of this, you know, it's always there, cause blind people are, you know, uh, I'll, let me put it this way. Most blind people don't have PhDs and work for Amazon. Mm-hmm. That's not the, that's not the, the common Path and um, and so uh, most blind people live in you know live in poverty and don't have access to the kind of resources to get the tools they want or need and you know uh, and yet blind people aren't stupid and they've got plenty of ability to think through their you know think through and and fix the problems they can and so if there's a if there's a, a braille note taker. That's open source that people could just build or have a friend build for them um, that would be a huge thing, really helpful um, to a lot of people all over the world
1: thinking of technology and just technology in general um, you know when you were growing up you you didn't have a lot of you know a lot of the kinds of things that are available now. what's the difference between someone blind uh, growing up now versus um in the nineteen 19-
2: 40s when I was 40s when up. you were when you were a kid right um, so I grew up in the 70s and 80s um, and I mean the the difference for blind people is the same as the difference for sighted people I think like from a maker perspective like you look at the kind the kinds of things that you can now build with you can build something in an afternoon with an Arduino for like 50 bucks that would have taken uh, you know uh, millions of dollars. And a team of scientists in the '80s, right? It's like, right. it's just, it's just crazy what what the technology, off-the-shelf technology, can do now in terms of um, access to information for blind people. Um, you know, everything used to be on on paper, but you know, it, it's kind of one of these things where the level, a, a rising tide, lifts mm-hmm. all boats, but the boats that are sinking before are still sinking after mm. the tide rises, you know? So yeah, there's like uh, for blind people with the internet and with the technology we have, it's a lot easier to get access to some kinds of information, but there are still lots of types of information and lots of um, areas where accessibility to that kind of information or those or capabilities is just like, doesn't it, you know, can't, just isn't possible. And it's, it's not because it's not possible, it's because the people that designed that particular experience weren't thinking of mm-hmm. blind people when they when they made it, and that's changing too, right in in a lot of the you know we're we're now more conscious of accessibility and and inclusion than we've ever been before. So things are getting better, and there are now laws uh that require certain types of accessibility that there weren't before. So things are things are are getting better, but it's still a pain in the ass to be blind for anybody. So,
0: yeah. Do you maybe uh, you want to talk a little bit about uh, some of the maps work that you that you've done and and you know what that's like and and how that supports people getting around uh, in you know urban environments and.
2: Yeah, sure. Yeah. So I mean, you know, a lot of the time people think of maps as being, um, you know, maps or graphics as being uh, really visual but they're not they're spatial right so there's spatial information is is information that when it's the the content is based on the relative positions of different things in that in that representation so a map or you know a map is is one kind of spatial representation or spatial data and so you can draw that with you know with ink that you can see with your eyes or you can you can draw it with lines that you can feel with your hands and tactile perception is quite different in many ways from visual perception, but the um, but it all goes into, you know, it. both methods enable you to build a, a cognitive map of what is being shown. So for a long time, there was actually like data from scientists who studied blind people, sighted scientists who studied blind people and said, blind people can't understand tactile maps. Like this is stuff done mm-hmm. in the, 60s or so right you know and if if they do uh if they do study tactile maps then you know then they should use one finger to you know to to trace the to trace things and it's like I knew that was wrong I knew that that was like definitely not true because I I use tactile maps I I enjoy them I know that my friends use tactile maps who are blind and and you know I used uh you know in high school I uh, was lucky enough to have a a transcriber who would transcribe all of my all of my calculus graphics, like all of my geometry graphics. So I didn't just have the braille, I didn't just have uh, the verbal part of it. I had you know I had the I had the graphics to go along with the geometry, the trig, and the calculus. And so I knew that these kinds of graphics are super useful, um, along with you know maps and other types of spatial data. And from a practical sense, we all knew it. And I also knew that there was no way that using one finger to, to explore that mm. was, was the most efficient way to do it. I use, I use like lots of fingers in both hands to explore. And yeah, if you want to sort of get down and dirty and, and understand one particular outline, you would probably trace it with a finger, but that's just one method. So I was really irritated by that data being out there in the world that information you know sort of so people were sort of thinking oh blind people don't why bother blind people can't use maps why should we bother to improve map resources for blind people so and it was kind of a chicken and egg problem I I couldn't really get funding to to do maps research because people thought it was a dead end one of my first postdoc projects I took a um, a tool I, I had built you guys might remember this I when I was in when we were in grad school I built this a toolkit for MATLAB to do um, sonification uh, output and tactile output I have a you know I have a braille embosser that can do um, tactile graphics it can basically just it's like a, a braille printer hooked up to my computer and it can do Braille, or it can do raised line drawings. Um, okay, so
1: so so one time out here. So sonification. Um, so if you're talking about an image, do you want to say something about what that that would be?
2: Yeah. So sonification for images is not so. I don't consider that to be its best use. Sonification. Sonification is usually um, best for single or. Uh, single variable or multivariable um, data representations, so the classic sonification is using uh, frequency for the y axis and time for the x axis or possibly left right um, positioning mm-hmm. auditorily for the for the x axis. and so you, you you can trace a a curve with um, using frequency mm-hmm. for vertical and using time or left right space for the horizontal. And so that's, that's a great way to do it. You can also do, you can also like, if you've got multiple variables, you can map that to um, energies in the frequency spectrum. So like, you you know, the, the sort of the timbre of your, uh, of the white noise that you're listening to might change based on uh, maybe there's, uh, you know, there are different, there are different ways of of doing this. And, and it's really, it's, it's definitely still more of an art than a science. There's a lot of psychoacoustics that needs to go into uh, complex auditory representations because you don't want one part of the representation masking other parts of the representation and, and so on. So um, so simple sonification is still sort of the most common thing. Um, the most available sonification tool is from, from SAS, the, uh, the big data company. Mm -hmm. Um, they make, uh, they make a plugin for, um, I think for the Chrome browser, which is called the, um, uh, the SAS sonifier or something. Anyway, you Mm -hmm. can probably Google it, but, but it's, it's, anybody can plug it in. And if you've, if you've created, uh, data with SAS, you can actually turn on the sonification module and be able to, to use, a bunch of different types of auditory displays usually uh, so you can leveraging... take it just from
1: a just from uh a spreadsheet file or something
2: I believe so yeah
1: yeah, yeah. Huh. so it's pretty cool when i was thinking of sonification i was first thinking of um you sound like you're not as hip to this but the you know the sonification of an entire say a pictorial image which
2: there is there is a way to do that okay so there so this gets into this gets into the whole realm of of uh, sensory substitution, right? Right,
1: and I and I think it's, in, I think it's interesting to uh, consider what the differences are, say, between hearing and vision to, to to transform one into the other.
2: Yeah, yeah. So the 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 way there are a couple different ways that have been tried to do sensory substitution from uh, vision to audition, and um, they uh, they mostly have to do with. Breaking an image into vertical strips from top to bottom, and assigning frequency bands to the vertical uh, parts of the strip. So the bottom part of the strip is going to have uh, low frequencies, and the top part of the strip is going to have
1: mm.
2: high frequencies. And what you'll hear is sort of a, a, a chord or a or a uh, you know or a noise distribution. As it scans
1: over, as it scans over the image.
2: And as it, yeah, so it'll break, it breaks the image into vertical strips from left to right, and then we'll play for, you know, we'll play those um, sometimes just in sequence and sometimes in stereo. But the problem with that, and and so if you, the more, um, the more pixel density or darkness or, you know, color saturation you have in a particular portion of the strip, the more Sound energy there will be in that presentation, um, the more sound energy there will be for that frequency in that strip, right? So um, there's a thing called VOIC, which is, um, you can, you know, you can look at, um, you can Google that and, and check it out. It's by a, a guy named Peter Meyer. He has been a, a very strong advocate for people to use this thing as a, as a tool in their day-to-day world and it is true that if you have like a picture of a house like you know if you're looking at the front of a of a house and it's got a peaked roof and it's got a chimney and it's got maybe a tree next to it and if you listen to the sonification of that image using the voic which uses the scheme that i was just Mm -hmm. describing um you know you you can you can sort of hear that whole thing you can hear the roof line going up you can hear the the chimney you can hear the tree but it doesn't sound like a house it doesn't Mm. it doesn't give you the percept and as soon as you change as soon as you change the the camera angle you're screwed Mm -hmm. because right um, you know because the geometry is really key to that whole thing and um and so you know his whole based on based on neuroplasticity you know um from Paul Bakirita and, and, and Michael, um, you know, your, your, your buddy, Joe, uh, Mike uh, Mike Mersnick, the, the early, the folks in the sixties and seventies thought like, you know what we can, we can make people hear pictures. Like we can actually substitute one thing for the other, but no matter how much you wish that were true, it's just not going to happen. And so the people that are advocates for this kind of thing, they're very optimistic, they're very well intentioned, but, but the science isn't there. And what do, you, um, what do you think
1: the fundamental, I mean, when I think about it, I can see, as you described, say, seeing a house from different viewpoints. I mean, that's a huge problem in object recognition is how to yeah. see this, how to recognize the same thing from different viewpoints, because it's like you say, it's totally different. Um, you think that's just the nature of the auditory input that you're getting because it's so temporally organized?
2: Well, it's temporally and spatially. I mean, there's there's plenty it's, of spatial yeah. organization, uh-huh. but it's just it it is. I mean, the the auditory system has a whole mechan. You know, we've got plenty of uh, stuff in there for object recognition, right? Mm-hmm. Um, or you know, or source identification. But it's not. It's it's certainly not organized like like that, right? It's not in these vertical strips. That's like if I think that um, you know, the idea of using sound to represent visual. Um, stuff in the world is a, is a great idea, but it has to be, you know, you have to tailor it to what the auditory system is good at. And so if you want somebody to hear a house, you've kind of got to, I think your best bet is to do a lot of computer vision processing, recognize that it's a house Mm. and, and provide some, uh, some other auditory representation uh, that there's a house there, the, the sort of the pixel for pixel representation into the auditory is not how the auditory system is going to be able to process that into an object, into a, into an image or into a scene. I
1: think the and hope it, was that, that it would work sort of like machine learning where you just do enough, put enough data in, eventually, eventually and I, it'll just sort of magically sort of work.
2: And that's what, that's what people, that's what, you know, Peter Meyer and and Paul Bakirita always said, right? But but frankly, I ain't got that kind of time, you know? <laughs> right, um, right. Well I was wondering, and, I,
1: I mean I was I was curious as to, you know, if you've listened to it a few times, whether it just sounds like garbage to you or or well I've listened to it, I've know. listened
2: to it plenty. And um I mean sort of their their ask is for blind people to like where, you know, where, you know, Use this thing, you know, eight hours a day, Mm -hmm. you know, for years in hopes that you would sort of eventually have this Eureka, I can see moment. Mm -hmm. And it's like, you know what? That's actually more about their desire to, you know, their messianic desires than about what's worth my time. It's actually much more worth my time (laughs) to learn. To, to get damn good at using a cane and and yeah, yeah. being able to hear what's out there in the world with my own excellent auditory system <laughs> than to like try to substitute some electronic visual it's just it's it the priorities are all screwed up well and, yeah and it um, sounds
1: like you mentioned earlier that you know there's so much information and sounds that are coming at you that i mean just processing that is plenty
2: exactly and and that's not to say that there's no place for for visual information in blind wayfinding there definitely is but what you're already getting from the auditory world is so is really rich and you need to pay attention to it so you definitely don't want you, you don't know, want to be some, distracted <laughs> yeah you don't want to hear all this you know all this artificial noise sort of masking the real world but you know like I said if if I had a um, if I had you know a camera that I could um point to the left before I cross a street to say um to say you know there's a you know there's still mm-hmm. a car coming at about half a block away, if it could do that fast enough, that would be information worth having you know but um, it has
1: to say there's a car coming from a block away not not some ambiguous um Noise that comes out of it.
2: The less of a cognitive load there is, mm. like when when you look when you're when you're when you roll for about to cross the street, you probably always forget to look. But um, but you know it happens. But yeah. if you if, <laughs> if you looked right, how much like how you know the monkey power necessary to identify right. that car coming at you is really low. Like there's a uh, very a, low yeah. cognitive uh, cognitive load associated with that. I, I don't want to have to do a lot of extra cognitive work. Like I'd rather focus on the things, the, the cues that are available to me and maybe wait an extra hmm. 10 seconds at the curb, figuring stuff out, than than have, um, you know, then have to sort of really concentrate on this one thing and use those 10 seconds for that. You know what I mean?
1: Yes, Absolutely. I do. Yeah. That makes a lot yeah. of sense.
0: And I mean, just thinking about back to like your stuff, Josh, and like, I mean, back to what I really like about a lot of the stuff that you showed me over the the years that you've been working on is it is all very, very much focused on like let's put stuff out into the world that people can really use. Let's yeah. let's take technology at its where it is today. What can we do that actually helps people today? And I mean, that's that's where I, I thought when you know, when I was visited you at Smith, Smith Kettlewell, and you were um, kind of going through some of the stuff you were doing with the maps. It showed it just seemed really really compelling yeah. from that perspective.
2: Well, and, and maybe I should just quickly finish telling that, that map story. So basically when I was doing this, you know, when I first, I, I mentioned the, the, the MATLAB sonification and tactile representation toolkit, cause I developed that in grad school for my own use. So, cause I needed to be able to um, look at my data and stuff. And so I took that toolkit and basically turned it into a, Tactile map toolkit. I, I built. I, I connected it up to a, a, a janky GIS that I wrote myself, and and wrote a, a, a program that could basically take um, street information, street data, and print out a nicely formatted Braille street map or a tactile street map of anywhere in the U.S. And that was like the first. That was like totally revolutionary because mm. for a blind person to get access to a tactile map somebody would have to draw it for them. Mm. Um, like it was, it was. there was no way to do this. This was, uh, you know, maybe 2003, 2005. There was just no way to get access to street maps of anywhere you wanted. So this was like this program that for the first time made it possible for anybody to get a street map of anywhere they wanted in the country. And then, you know, later we expand, like it's this so it's called TMAP, the Tactile Maps Automated Production System, TMAP. And I, um, in the last few years, it's been sort of rebooted and relaunched. And um, the San Francisco Lighthouse now runs it as a service and can give tactile maps to anybody who wants them. And lots of people want them because guess what? Those people in the 60s were wrong. Blind people do, <laughs> mm-hmm. do benefit from tactile maps and they can read them and actually, um the the one-fingered stuff was also something I was able to make a small uh contribution to debunking. I had a a postdoc uh, named Valerie Morash for a couple of years, and she was an amazing collaborator, really just a a methodological genius, like just one of the most capable and brilliant uh perceptual scientists I've ever met. Um, she's not with us anymore. She she uh died in a really tragic. Uh, accident a few years ago but um, but she and I and a few others published uh, in in perception this great work of hers on using multiple fingers and multiple hands to um, to explore tactile maps and she uh, she conclusively showed that more fingers and more hands is better through like beautifully designed beautifully counterbalanced very very rigorous science like just like, so we don't need to worry. She, she, she it, took care it's of solved. That. Yeah. Cool.
0: Well, maybe uh, this would be a good time to bring up the question that we always uh, have to ask.
1: Yeah. Which I'm is, sorry. Yeah. No, I think we have to. <laughs> we have to ask oh.
0: this, which is how, is, with the technology that you're inventing, how will this technology contribute or bring about the robo apocalypse that destroys humanity?
1: Now we just want you to think about this Josh because there are side effects to everything even Arduino projects and braille maps could have a devastating consequence so surely you've given this some deep thought what evil are you unleashing on the world
2: That's a good question You know I personally think that the the one of the one of the Main you know it 's not me personally unleashing it but but accessibility and and sort of the the issues around disability access are very interesting, and I think that privacy issues are have a lot of relevance for for blind people, so our ability to communicate and you know Have two-way video from pretty much anywhere has really changed the way blind people do stuff. There are now services, both paid and free, where a blind person can, uh, through an app on their phone, basically call a sighted assistant and get help with something. And it can be anything from what's the address on this envelope to what are the cooking instructions on this package or uh, what's the off button on this thermostat or how do I You know, so, so things, things like that, or it can be, you know, I'm lost, uh, I'm looking for the, the CVS. Can you see it around here somewhere? Or I, I just dropped my diamond earring on the carpet. Can you help me find it? You know, these sorts of things are all possibilities and people are using this kind of thing to do very personal stuff. Like, I mean, you know, is there blood in my stool? Uh, Is the, uh, you know, did my, is my pregnancy test pink Mm. or, you know, you know, whatever the color might be. Do I, do I have this, does, does this sore have a, you know, what, what color is the effluent from this sore on my, you know, body? Um, (laughs) So things like that are like things that a sighted person doesn't need any help with. And they are things that blind people would have gone to their doctor for or gotten help from a, a close friend or something like that. But now we're reaching out to strangers with mm-hmm. cameras to, to do these sorts of things. And um and I think that we have not yet really sort of grappled properly with the privacy issues around these, these services. Um and another semi-apocalyptic issue is, you know, we always have been talking about self-driving cars as being. The thing that blind people really could benefit from and and believe me i'm uh i'm looking forward to it but lyft and uber um when they when they came along were game changers for blind people and and they will i think continue to be like an amazing resource for getting to the places you want to go because before that existed blind people had to uh use public transportation or rely on a friend or maybe use like, you know, some kind of, uh, in, in some cases use, uh, you know, paratransit or something like that. But, but getting from place to place has always been a huge challenge for blind people. And, and Lyft, you know, the, the TNCs, the transportation network companies, like Lyft and Uber made a huge, like huge shift in what people could do. But at the same time, and I don't mean to sound like an old fart, um, but uh, I'm damn good at getting around with a cane because I grew up having to do that. Mm -hmm. Like if I wanted to do my own thing, I had to get there. I had to do my own thing by getting there myself. And with the reduction on the importance of use of, uh, you know, independent use of public transit, now a blind person can get pretty much anywhere they want if they can use a mobile phone and that is that is sobering because it's not just about being able to use a cane and get from place to place in the outdoors it's sort of about independence in general and mm-hmm. so there are definite concerns about people's ability to maintain their the skills they they need in order to be independent in a in a world where there are more and more opportunities for their hand to be held and escorted or assisted in one way or another. And, the, you know, I everybody, you know, everybody says, you know, oh, kids today, right? I mean, it's like, I think every generation since, uh, you know, since we climbed down out of trees has been weaker and less capable than the generation before, uh, or at least that's how parents have probably always seen it. But, um, but this is a concern. You know, it is worrisome that that blind people will have fewer skills going forward because the technology allows them, allows us to be lazier, to be mm-hmm. less less independently capable of doing the things. So, I mean, you know, if if the driverless cars don't come along, if Uber and and Lyft uh, evaporate or or otherwise fail, you know, there are going to be people who are going to be Seriously impacted by that because uh they, they haven't developed skills or they've built their lives around expecting those services to be there. Like for example, you know, I live in a place where I have great access to public transit because I I moved here before Lyft and Uber existed. But if I were buying a house for the first time and I were and I assumed Lyft and Uber would always be there, I could buy a house wherever I want, right? I could live wherever I want. And if they if they go away, all of a sudden, that really changes the way I live.
0: But I think, unfortunately, your your technology that you're developing is not going to is not going to uh, contribute too much to the robot apocalypse.
2: Well, I mean, the AIs, right? The the AIs are always going to be useful. You know, in terms of you know, if I've got a camera and I I want good information about what's around me, um, that's not just going to be computer vision. Computer vision is going to be really good at maybe. Um, parsing the scene into objects, but if I want to know what's important, if I want something to be able to give me information about the relevant pieces of that scene, that's going to get more and more, more and more AI-ish. And um, and so that's you know, w- there are huge possibilities for AI to to get into the accessibility space, and and I think that accessibility may be a great excuse for the availability of ais i i foresee that when when we start legislating ais and their capabilities one of the levers that the pro ai side will use will be accessibility for sure
0: well josh thank you so much for for being on the show and always a pleasure to talk to you especially about the technology and, and you know the stuff that you invent and the stuff that you're working on is is really just very cool and very inspiring so thanks a lot for for joining us on the show
2: thanks joe it's always really fun to to get to hang out with you guys i miss you and uh this is a great opportunity to to uh throw some ideas around and um
1: it's it's fantastic thanks a lot uh, josh
2: thank you rolf lovely to hear your voice